The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, January 12th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Seventy-two years ago, nearly to the day, uh, January 10th, 1948, uh, a man named Marcel Sternberger was a Hungarian photographer. He woke up that morning on January 10th. He boarded the 909 train in Long Island that would take him to his stop in Woodside, New Jersey, where he would jump on the subway, which would take him into Manhattan, where his studio was. Now, some of you might be familiar with Sternberger. Did, did it show up? I have a picture up there. Sternberger was famous for his portraits. That's him with Einstein. Uh, he took some of the most famous portraits of Freud, Einstein, FDR, uh, Frida Kahlo, Bernard Shaw. I mean, just famous photographer. Some of you in the arts community might be familiar with him. Uh, on his way to work that morning on January 10th, as he got on the subway in Woodside, on his way into Manhattan, he decided in the moment that he would switch trains and take a train not to Manhattan but into Brooklyn because of one of his closest friends had been sick. And he thought, on my way in, I will stop, I will spend some time with my friend, then I'll hop a train, I'll head to my studio later in the afternoon. And what happened from that decision forward became a story that Sternberger would write and it would be published later on that year in 1948 in the Reader's Digest. So I just want you to hear some of his words of what happened from that point. Sternberger said that afternoon trains to Manhattan can be packed. So after he left his friend's apartment in Brooklyn, he went to hop a train to Manhattan in the afternoon. And as he entered the car, he, he saw a man jump up and leave. And so he decided, I'm going to grab his seat. If you've ever been on the subway in New York, you know you see a seat, you go and you grab it. Sternberger said, I've been living in New York long enough not to start conversations with strangers. But being a photographer, I have the peculiar habit of analyzing people's faces. And I was struck by the features of the passenger on my left. He was probably in his late 30s. And when he glanced up, his eyes seemed to have a hurt expression in them. He was reading a Hungarian language newspaper and something prompted me to say to him in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man seemed surprised to be addressed in his native language, but he answered politely, you may read it now, I'll have time later on. So during the half hour ride to town, we had quite a conversation. He said his name was Bella Paskin, a law student when World War II started. He had been put into a German labor battalion and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot until he reached his home in Debrecen. It's a large city in eastern Hungary. When he went to the apartment once occupied by his father, mother, brothers, and sisters, he found strangers there. Then he went upstairs to the apartment that he and his wife once had. It was also occupied by strangers. None of them had ever heard of his family. As he was leaving the apartment, a boy ran after him yelling in Hungarian, Uncle Paskin, Uncle Paskin, and the child was the son of his old neighbors. He went to the boy's home and talked to his parents. His parents told Paskin, your family is dead. The Nazis took them, and they took your wife as well to Auschwitz. A few days later, too heartsick to remain any longer in Hungary, he set out on foot, sneaking across border after border until he reached Paris. He managed to immigrate to the United States in October of 1947, just three months before I met him. Now he carries on this conversation with, with this Hungarian and they begin to talk. And while they talked, Sternberger remembered 
that a few weeks before he had been at a dinner party in the city and he had met some other Hungarians. He had taken down their names and their numbers so they continue to communicate and, and build friendships there in the city. And what happened next is, well, you, you can read the rest of the story. I'll give you the end. I looked at Bella and I said, we need to get off the train. I took him at the next station and I led him to a phone booth. And I made a call to one of the numbers that was in my address book. When I heard the voice, I told them who I was and I asked that person, did you live in Debrecen? And they told me their former address and I asked them to hold the line for a moment. And I looked over at Bella and I said, try to be calm. Something miraculous is about to happen to you. Here, take this telephone and talk to your wife. True story. A last minute decision to visit a friend, an open seat on a packed subway, a unusual prompting to talk to a stranger, on and on and on. What words would you use to explain that story? I mean, what words come to your mind when the chain of events that played out begin to rattle around in your mind? Sternberger said something miraculous is about to happen. If we're really honest, the idea of the miraculous happening in our day and even in our life is something many of us aren't comfortable with. As a, as a culture, we're far more comfortable with the ideas of chance, the ideas of fate, the ideas of coincidence, of just good luck. And as you hear Sternberger's story, from the human perspective, everything that happened could all seem so trivial, so inconsequential. Just a decision to go visit a friend. Just a particular person having to jump off the train. Well, here's the thing. When, when you finally decide at some point in your mind and in your heart to functionally dismiss the idea of a sovereign God, all that's left for you, the only alternative you have is something like chance. I mean, even in the church, we wouldn't say it, but many of us tend to function daily on the basis as though God created the world created all of its laws and its patterns, set them into place to operate while he stepped back to watch. And that kind of thought, even in a place like this, makes us all too reluctant and even uncomfortable with the idea of God's providence. And what is the providence of God, after all? And one of my favorite definitions comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll put it up here on the screen Question number 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is the providence of God? And here's the answer. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand that's a tremendous answer in fact friends your response to that question what is the providence of God and your response to this catechism's answer says volumes about your view of God all things come not by chance but by his fatherly hand do you actually believe that 
If you were to read the Heidelberg Catechism, you would discover that this particular question falls on the Lord's Day 10, the 10th Lord's Day in the order of the process, and it falls under the section answering the question in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator in heaven and earth. This question and this answer goes to explain that confession and that statement. Believing in God's fatherly hand of providence is part of believing in an almighty God. You see, if God is truly creator and truly almighty, then he must be almighty over all that he has created. And the catechism is trying to help you see that if God is a father, then he surely exercises that authority over all of his creation and his creatures for the good of his creation. And so the catechism naturally anticipates some of our thoughts. And so it follows up that question with this one. How does knowing, resting, believing in God's providence actually help me? Why think about it? Why study it? What difference would believing in this make? I want you to listen to the answer. That you and I may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. More on that in a little while. The providence of God is meant to be one of our heart's greatest hopes. We're not meant to be scared of it. We're not meant to be uncomfortable with it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That was a very long introduction to what could be a very long story in God's word this morning. Um, it's also a bit of a spoiler. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 9. We're going to pick up our story there. And as we pick up the story there, we're going to meet some new characters that we'll be with for a while. But I didn't want us to miss the forest for the trees. This morning, I, w I don't want you to be left marveling at the people you're going to meet in these pages. In fact, there's going to be very little to marvel at in some of the people. This morning, I want you to leave marveling in God's fatherly providence. And as we read through his text this morning, I want you to watch for it. And so as we pick the story back up this morning, let me remind you that 1 Samuel begins in the latter years of the period of the time of the Judges. 1 Samuel's chapters 1 through about 11 or 12 overlap with the end of the period of the judges. And the period of the judges was a time of a tremendous moral and spiritual depravity in God's people. In fact, as the book begins to draw to a close, back in Judges chapter 19 through about chapter 23, 24, we read of one of the most horrific incidents, incidences in the history of God's people in the tribe of Benjamin, which led to a tremendous civil war, almost wiping the tribe of Benjamin off of the map. But the refrain started there and continued on to the end of the book. In that period, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so the book of 1 Samuel opened up in that season. And we saw that the corruption, the moral and spiritual corruption of God's people had gone so far as to infiltrate the priesthood. Eli's sons were abusing God's people and exploiting God's people. And Eli, the high priest himself, was benefiting from his, the sin of his sons. So God brought Eli and his sons down. And he raised up Samuel. But as we continued in the story, we saw that Samuel himself had son issues. And so God's people 
seeing that a day was going to come when Samuel, who was a tremendous leader, would not be with them anymore, they came to Samuel. You might remember the story. They came to him and they said, we want you to give us a king like all the nations. Israel had very real foreign policy issues. Philistines were still encroaching. Ammonites were still around. They had just lost a decisive battle just before this point. But more than anything, they wanted to be like all the people around them. They had always had a king. God had always been their king. He had always gone before them, fought their battles before them, provided for them. But as we saw in the story, they were rejecting him as their king. Even though God had planned for them to have a king in his time and in his way, who would not be a king instead of him, but would be a king under him, God tells Samuel, go ahead and give the people the very thing they want. And that's where chapter 8 ended, before the Advent season. So this morning we pick up the story in chapter 9. A king is coming, but what kind of king will he be? We're going to get a glimpse of this first new king in chapters 9 through 11. And if you know the story, you know this first king proves to be a disaster. He was one of the greatest draft busts in history. He's an awesome prospect, but he'll prove to let everyone down. It's a story that things can look good in the beginning, but incremental disaster and sin can lead to a tragedy. And the story begins in chapter 9. So let's pick it up there in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Whenever stories start off with there was a man of so-and-so, you know something's about to happen, right? There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacharath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. If we had more time, I would wonder aloud with you what was going on under his shoulders. It's the strangest description. Did he have a really long neck? Like, I, I don't, we don't have time. My clock is already going. But here we, we meet Saul. He grew up in the home of a wealthy father, but his home was in the smallest and most insignificant of Israel's tribes. He was a Benjaminite. We know from Judges, Judges chapter 19, they have a pretty morally sketchy history. But this is where we find Saul. Saul, his name means asked. He is going to be the one the people have asked for. And given his features... The way he's described, the way we meet him, you would have to imagine that even if the story that we're about to read didn't play out the way it did, if the elders of Israel were to line up all of the the wisest, the smartest, the strongest men in all of Israel, Saul would be the one the people would choose. He was just that guy. And something I learned this week, I'd always think I've read the story a bit wrong until I saw it again this week and, and someone pointed out to me, Saul is not a boy. He's not really even a young man. I think as we meet David later on, we're so familiar with his story, that's how we kind of read these stories. But there's a clue later on in 1 Samuel chapter 13, about three and a half to four years from this point, when Saul leads Israel into battle and he sets up his armies, his son Jonathan is leading a whole garrison of his troops. To lead a garrison of troops in the Israelite army at that point, you had to be at least 20 years old. So Saul already has a son who's at least 17 at this point. Saul's probably mid-30s, early 40s when we pick up this story. He's a strong, handsome, tall, 
well-bred, wealthy man. Verse 3, we pick up how we meet him. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you. Arise and go look for the donkeys. So this story couldn't start off more normal than this. It's everyday life on the land in a family. The donkeys went lost. You got to go find them. Nothing in particularly special about this. This morning, Saul woke up just like every other normal day on the farm. And so he did what his father asked. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim. They passed through the land of Shalisha, but they didn't find them. They passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. But when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. So they've been out on this journey looking for lost donkeys and they haven't been able to find them. It's probably been two or three days. They keep going because it's very important. This would be like someone in the construction industry losing their truck and all their tools. These donkeys are very important to the, to the wealth and the work of the family. So they keep looking. And we get a picture of Saul here. Saul is a bit unlike in the beginning any of the other sons we've met so far. Eli's sons were despicable and corrupt. Even Samuel's sons went astray. But here we meet this son who seems to be obedient to his father and dutiful to his father. He seems to be more stand-up than the sons we've met so far. Here he is even worried about what his dad might think about them being gone for so long. But at the same time, we also get a glimpse of a man who's willing to call it quits when he can't find what he wants to after a certain period of time. More on him later. But, verse 6, he, talking about the servant here, said to him, Saul, behold, there is a man of God in this city and he is a man who is held in high honor and all that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? Saul seems to be concerned about showing this man of God proper honor. That's a little bit different than the other sons we've met so far along the way already who are abusing their position and abusing God's people. So verse 8, the servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Now, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. That's just the author of the story putting in a narrative note for you, the original readers of the story, that what we call prophets now, they used to call seers then. That's all that is right there. And so Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Now, we're not going to dwell on Saul too much this morning. We've got a lot of time with Saul to come, but just make a note. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, we learned that Samuel's third great-grandfather was a man named Zuf. They're now in the land of Zuf. They found themselves in Samuel's territory. Samuel, as we saw through our journey with him before Advent, he's been traveling around the entirety of God, the land of God's people, around Israel, proclaiming the word of the Lord on these circuits, going to all the different tribes, and he would return home for a period of time and travel back out. But here's Saul, who doesn't seem to know or make any connection in his mind that he's in the territory of the great leader and prophet of God. 
He doesn't seem to be aware of Samuel's existence. Nonetheless, where he finds himself right now. He doesn't even seem to be the one leading in the steps on the journey. It's his servant who tends to direct these ways. Verse 11, as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water. And they said to him, is the seer here? Now this is a big time Old Testament motif. Whenever so far in the story of the Old Testament, you run across women gathering at a well and people coming to meet them, something big is about to happen. In fact, the majority of Israel's patriarchs up to this point found their wives that way. Genesis chapter 24, Isaac's servant finds his wife Rebekah at the well. Genesis 29, Jacob meets Rachel at the well. Exodus chapter 2, Moses finds his wife the same way. Something is moving along in the story. Verse 12, they answered, he is here. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He's come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. Maybe Samuel is, is coming back home, back to his hometown, his hometown from one of his circuits traveling around proclaiming the word of the Lord. But as soon as you enter the city, verse 13, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat for the people will not eat until he comes since he must bless the sacrifice and afterward those who are invited will eat as well. Now go up. That's written in a very emphatic way. Go up for you'll meet him immediately. You've arrived just in time. Go on. So verse 14, they went up to the city and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the scene pauses there. Saul woke up a couple mornings ago and took off to go find some lost donkeys. That's all he's doing. He's looking for donkeys. He just happened to find himself in the territory of Zuf, Samuel's home. His servant just happened to have the right gift for the man of God. They just happened to arrive into town and just happened to meet these women at that precise time that they had gone to the well and they knew what was going on with Samuel. And they told him they had just happened to arrive at the exact right time to see him. Now, what words come to your mind when you try to explain all of that? From one point of view, those are just some crazy coincidences. That's tremendous luck on Saul's part. Maybe for all of that obedience Saul has shown his father, the universe is just paying it forward to him, opening up each door along the way for him. But maybe there's another perspective. See, verses 15 and 16, they're kind of an intrusion in the story. In fact, they're a flashback. If you were watching the movie, this is where it would cut and it would flash back to a scene that happened before. That's what's happening in verses 15 and 16. Listen to what it says. Now the day before Saul came, so the day before Saul shows up in Zilf and meets these women, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Saul was just looking for donkeys. Everyday, ordinary faithfulness. 
The very thing he was asked to do, supposed to do, does willingly, not begrudgingly. A normal day on the farm with his family. Everyday, ordinary faithfulness. Just looking for donkeys. But God was sending Saul to Samuel. From a human perspective, it all seems pretty trivial. Donkeys, half shekels of silver, journeys, happenstance conversations at a well. But through the lens of God's providence, what seems small and inconsequential has massive and eternal consequence. What looks like coincidence is just another chain in the link of a much longer divinely appointed outcome. Donkeys go missing and a king gets found. Have you ever had any uh, of the, if this person hadn't, then I wouldn't? If this hadn't have happened, then this would have never come about. My wife and I lived in Churchill when we first got married. We were there for years. Had a wonderful house on the corner of 24th and Broad. St. John's Chapel was our literal next door neighbor. The Muse, a city garden, was our backyard. We were broken into seven times. Lived in Churchill, it's the way it was. But one particular week, we were broken into three times in the same week. The third to the first time we were broken into in the middle of the night while we were there, someone with a size 16 boot print kicked our entire door frame in and came all the way to our bedroom door. So we decided it was time to leave Churchill. We didn't know where we were going to go. We looked in the near west end. We looked in the far west end. She grew up in the south side, so we didn't go to the south side. Our real estate agent showed us a little house in a part of the city that no one was moving into. It was the north side. It was right over here in the neighborhood we'd been in for 15 years, right over there. So we moved in over there. We didn't know the north side. I'm not from Richmond. She had never lived there. But we fell in love with the access, the interstates, the sidewalks. And every single day I would leave my house, I would go to work, and I would pass this intersection and see this school. And in my life at that time, God was doing another series of of different things. I couldn't quite figure out what was happening. But as God was leading me to to what he had for me down the road and planting a church, I kept thinking, that's a perfect place for a church. So finally, when the time came, I walked in. I met with the principal. That's a whole other story. He had kicked out three previous churches, told a friend of his who was a church planter, I'll never have a church in my school, but for whatever reason, said yes to me. And here we are. Next week, 12 years from that very time. And as I thought about it, I thought of all the people who partnered with us and made it possible for us to, to plant this church 12 years ago, but the very first partner in planting this church was a would-be burglar with a size 16 foot. Because if that had never happened, we were so stubborn, we probably would have never left Churchill. I would have never come to this part of the city probably. would have never probably understood the school was here. would have never known the blessing that it was to be here. But, but God knew what he was doing. But here's the thing about God's providence. We, more often than not, we, we don't get to see the chain that many of these incidents and links are a part of. Oftentimes, we don't see the connections between the ordinary events and the sovereign outcome. More often than not, life just feels like another day of looking for lost donkeys. But here's the thing, friends. With a heart that's rested in the providence of an almighty God, we begin to understand that he's just as much in the everyday as he is in the extraordinary. When you and I can't see how the ordinary everyday faithfulness of today makes any difference at all, 
It's a confidence in the providence of an almighty God that whispers to our heart that there's a much larger masterpiece that he's weaving us into. We've talked about it here before. It's that perspective of the master weaver weaving a a great tapestry or a rug on a loom. If you're laying on the ground underneath the loom, the whole thing looks like knots and threads and sprays and you can't make sense of what's happening. But from the perspective above the loom, you can see how every thread and every color, every stitch and every weave fits together for the ultimate outcome that's being put in. Everyday ordinary faithfulness for you and I, it just looks like sometimes knots and threads. It looks like lost donkeys. But through the lens of the providence of God, we can recognize that even just looking for lost donkeys is a thing we're supposed to keep doing because he's in it as much as he is in the extraordinary. It's the thing that he's given us to do. Here's the thing, the the providence of God, it's not just a cold and and matter-of-fact reality. As you go back to the story, in particular, verses 15 and 16, just marvel at the motivation of God in this seemingly coincidental moments that piled up in the story of Saul. Verse 16, it says, God says, I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. He's not giving them a king to give in to their demands. He's giving them Saul because he's seen and he's heard their cries. It's a merciful and compassionate picture. Three times here in verses 15 and 16, God calls Israel my people. He's sovereign. He can't be manipulated. He'll give Israel exactly what they need. We'll meet him later on in David, but he won't give them a king for the reasons they're asking. They want to be like everyone else. They're they're scared to be weak. They're scared to be different. But God gives them a king because he's compassionate. Their rejection of him doesn't stop his fatherly provision for them. We've already learned in the story, he knows the sinful idolatry hidden in their demand. And at the same time, he hears their cries of distress. I love how Dale Ralph Davis says it, Israel's stupidity cannot wither God's compassions. Friends, that's good news for people like you and me. Even in our sin, we don't stop being objects of God's mercy. Praise God. If you're his child, your sin doesn't dry up the rivers of his mercy. As Psalm 103 says, as the height of the heaven is above the earth, so strong is God's faithful love for those who fear him. Friends, God's providence is his fatherly care, which means he exercises his authority over his creation for his glory and the good of his children. When you and I consider the providence of the almighty God, we have to keep in our minds and in our hearts that God's almighty sovereign providence is never, ever, ever separated from his infinite goodness. When was the last time your heart melted at the thought that you serve such a mighty and compassionate God? You serve an eternally compassionate God who you can't manipulate. Praise him. But who you can be confident in that he always sees you, he always hears you, and he answers your prayers in wise and compassionate ways.
I think it was Tim Keller. When we can't figure out who said it, just say Keller said it. He's smarter than everybody else anyway. Someone, I'll just say it was Keller, said if we knew all that God knew, we'd ask for exactly what he gives. This is the confidence that the providence of God brings to our hearts. Yes, 1 Samuel 9 opens up with the story of lost donkeys and a handsome yet fairly passive man. But those are just the knots on the bottom side of the loom. From above the loom, looking down, we're being reminded of God's fatherly providence that never ceases to exercise his sovereign authority for his glory and the good of his children. And you and I need to be reminded of this. You and I really need to be convinced of this in our heart. When we are, it changes everything. No, it's not easy at times to be convinced of this. That's why we have to talk about it. But at the same time, it's not something to fear. Kevin DeYoung, who wrote a great commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, in writing about the providence of God, said, you can look at providence through the lens of human autonomy and our idolatrous notion of freedom and see a mean God moving things like tsunamis and kings, like chess pieces and some kind of perverse divine playtime. Or you can look at the providence of God through the lens of the Bible and see a loving God counting the hairs on our heads and directing the sparrows in the sky so that we might live life unafraid. What else can we even begin to wish for ourselves if not even a hair on our head can fall without his will? See, friends, God's providence is not something that you and I are ever meant to be afraid of. It's not something that's ever meant to feel controlling and limiting. It's meant to be freedom giving. When our hearts are captured by the the fatherly providence of an almighty God, you and I can take risks with our life and live in bold ways for the name of Jesus because we know ultimately he's in charge. It's the providence of God that grips our heart, the almighty fatherly care of God exercising his authority over all of his creation that the catechism says begins to produce patience in our life when things are not going well for us. And I think there's a part of everyone's life in here that you could put your finger on right now and say, that's not going for me. It's the treasured providence of God. It's the heart's grip on the almighty compassion of God for his children that begins to produce patience in us in those times. It's a heart that is beginning to treasure the fatherly providence of God that begins to generate gratitude when those things in life do begin to go our way. It's the fatherly providence of God that creates confidence and our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. The assurance of this you and I know he has given us as he worked out his love for us in the ultimate way on the cross. Friends, 1 Samuel chapter 9 starts off strange. Lost donkeys, a somewhat dim sun, a wandering journey, seeming trivial happenstance incidents that occur in the life of this one man. 
But friends, there are no accidents in our life. From Saul's lost donkeys to his servant's half shekel to the women at the well to every late night phone call you get, every unexpected bonus, every oncology report that's been sent to you. It's all within the purview of our God who sees all things, knows all things, and loves you more than you could ever know or imagine. Friends, his fatherly providence is for you. It's not against you. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word. Father, we thank you that You are not one who we can celebrate as almighty and powerful, but distant. We don't have to celebrate your creative power, but then lament your your cold heart. Lord, your fatherly providence reminds us that your almighty power is exercised in our lives, in this world, in everything and in every way for your glory and our greatest good. And as our hearts are increasingly captured in your goodness, as you, have, as you have demonstrated to us time and time again, most clearly seen in the sending of your son to die in our place for our sins, the raising of him in victory over sin and death itself, we are reminded of your goodness and we can trust in your providence. God, we ask this morning that where our hearts have begun to see you as cold and distant or disinterested. Lord, you would reignite a a warmth in our heart towards you, the one who sees, who knows, who loves, who cares, who's involved, who's responding, who's working all things out according to the counsel of your will for your glory and our greatest good. We don't have to be afraid. We can live free We can grow patient. We can live in the joy of gratitude and the confidence for tomorrow, knowing, knowing that we are steadfast in your almighty hand. Lord, we ask this morning that you would begin that work in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.